0: Ever thought you could make a living dreaming up wine concoctions, hosting interactive wine dinners and travelling the world improving your craft? Well, today's interviewee has just done just that. Welcome to episode three of the Future Farmers podcast, where we interview leaders in the Australian ag industry to find out how they got there, why they do what they do, the challenges, the triumphs and what's next for the industry. I'm Olivia Faulkner and today we're talking to Will Gilbert, sixth generation winemaker from Gilbert Family Wines in Mudgee. At 30 years old, Will is one of Australia's finest young winemakers. He has worked with some of the best wine labels in the world, notably in Niagara and Okanagan in Canada, as well as Burgundy, France, before coming home to work in his family company. Will has led the development of numerous new award-winning wine labels, managed a highly successful rebranding of the Gilbert family label, and developed beautiful food over fire dining experiences, celebrating top Australian produce with the famous outdoor chef Pips on back. But enough from me. We all know what's eating Gilbert Grape. Now let's hear about what's drinking it. How are you today, Will?
1: Very well, thanks Liv. Thank you for having me here today on on episode three of the Future Farmers podcast.
0: Not a worry. So tell us a bit about yourself.
1: So being broadened and bred in the wine industry, um, was completely immersed in it from a very young age. Uh, Luckily enough, coming from a family of wine, six generations long. So days spent were in those youthful years of following dad around the winery, going to vineyard inspections and just um, really being an absolute sponge and absorbing as much information as possible at those very young formative years of a four, five, six-year-old travelling the countryside. And then from there, I went away to school and then started part of a university degree. I haven't finished it. Um, Hopefully I will one day soon, when time permits. (laughs) But um, I've travelled the world, been very lucky to... To go to France, as you said, and also Canada, um, and learn from some of the, some of the best winemakers, but also business minds in in the field as well, which is very exciting.
0: Fantastic. What would you say were the greatest lessons you learned overseas?
1: Just the the all encompassing um, farm to farm to dining table experience that wine can offer, particularly in that cultural scenario and setting of France. Um, it's a real family mentality and even though I was working for a first generation winemaker there he, um, he still completely had that full family encompassing experience of, of the effort that's going into the vineyard and then continuing that effort and passion and enthusiasm to creating the greatest bottle of wine possible and then from there the travelling experience and the food and the company that they were all keeping but um, it was generally just that detail, attention to detail that goes into creating such great amazing drops of wine in beautiful France and Canada.
0: Fantastic. You've now been in the wine industry for 10 years. What keeps you in it? What do you love about wine production?
1: One day doing a podcast today to doing a wine dinner tomorrow to out in the vineyard and the winery. The, the diversity of the job is, is well and truly what keeps us in it and it's always, it's always very different a lot of people assume that you know it's all glitz and glamor and fine dining and um and just having lots of dinners and tasting wine yeah. all day but um, yeah, there's a lot of other stuff that goes on behind the scenes and that's that's the enjoyable aspect um, and but also the dinners make those hard enjoyable aspects a little bit more worthwhile um, and the the family passion that that we have and that has been instilled in me from from my two parents that I've been fortunate enough to work for for a long, long time, but also um, work, work for and, and with side-by-side Side still today. So that, um, that's well and truly been instilled in me from dad, um, which was instilled in him through other family members that he had worked for and worked with and- um...
0: Fantastic. <laughs> and on that note, you are a sixth generation winemaker. It was your great, great, great grandfather who established the family business. But there must be challenges are we talking family biffs in the backyard or has it been quite smooth sailing it's,
1: it's all been it's all been smooth sailing um other than you know back in in the 1920s which when the original family business uh, was disintegrated and bought out by a larger current current wine producing family um so therefore in the 1920s Peasey Vale, which is the old family family label which was established. 1847 by my great 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 grandfather um was no longer the Gilbert families so therefore everyone had to you know reinvent the wheel and come up with something else and and that sort of led dad to many many years later to moving to New South Wales from South Australia and re-establishing the family name in the industry and the real passion and drive in 2004 to start his own label was the fact, that, the fact that his son um, was wanting to be involved in the industry and to continue that family legacy of being the six generations. There's no pressure, no family beefs, but it's all, you know, we have our ups and downs and stressful moments, but it's at the end of the day, that's just because we're both so passionate about it and he, want, he wants what's best for me and I want what's best for him. So we have the best of intentions, but, you know, sometimes things can be misinterpreted.
0: In 2015, you led a very significant change to the Gilbert family branding, the strategy and the production itself. Can you run me through these and how they went with your family?
1: For I'm quite an experimental uh, winemaker. I push the boundaries in certain things and um, and try to teeter the line of doing as little as possible, but still at the same time making, making the best wine possible and for quite a few years I was doing a few things and doing a few trials and experiments and and these wines would just disappear into bigger bigger blends and in 2015 dad allowed the first of some of these experiments to to be released and to see the light of day and um and they were going under an experimental label and also there were some ma- major shifts in in the wine styles that we were create, creating. So a little bit more of a minima, minimal intervention uh, scenario with some of these wines. Um, things that weren't as sort of mainstreamed and manipulated and steered in the in the direction that that dad originally wanted it to be. It was more steered in the direction of doing all the work in the vineyard and just letting the right path of those, that grape and that ferment and that wine maturation will take. Um, and, to the point of what will be, will be from that wine and being incredibly diligent and and um, having a high level of attention to detail for that. But it was also um, allowing a bit of a change in, in style of Gilbert Wines and something that was a bit more topical with the current climate of food and provenance of paddock to plate um, and everyone caring where their food and, and now alcohol was coming from. And then there was also a bit of a rebranding of the confusion of our, of our branding name of Gilbert by Simon Gilbert and there were just a lot of Gilberts in there. So we reduced it all down and just kept it short and sweet and just the, the one Gilbert, not the, it's just all too confusing. There were very many different interpretations of wine list of, of wines right. and, and, um, and what would be put on a wine list. So short and sweet and then just trying to interact with with our generation of people and, and I think that's where we're all quite lucky that we are quite adaptive and are multi-skilled and have, have been brought up, say in the agriculture industry or some people may not, but still have a huge passion for it. But then there's also other factors that we can all do and contribute to a business and um, whether it's yeah, traveling, traveling around the world or, or social media or being creative in other aspects. and, and um, yeah.
0: Fantastic. What are you most proud of in your career today?
1: That successful rebrand and um, yeah, very proud of how these wines have been received, of winning innovative trophies with some of these styles of wines. And then um, I recently sat down with one of Australia's best wine writers and he's historically been a big fan of the Gilbert wines and, and Dad's style of wines. But what I was most pleased was with these two varieties of wines, um, our Chardonnay and Pinot, which are my two. Passion projects my two favorite varieties um, he scored them incredibly highly and he was quite blown blown away by them and that was just the the real sort of tick of approval that the change in style is going in the right direction and um, and that I was sort of breaking away from of, of the mold that was formed under dad um, and he's still very much guided and um, and he's a huge influence in my wine journey, but it was just a nice realisation that yeah, the, way, the style that you're wanting these two styles of wines to go down is, is still being well received by one of, one of the country's best wine writers.
0: Well done. It can't all be daisies and trophies and awards. What are the challenges that you face day to day?
1: Uh, major challenges that are facing us is, is certainly climate change. Um, and that is obviously water availability, and these warming, warming days and dry, drier conditions. So, some of the things that we're all doing to um, to not eliminate that risk, but you know, make it easier for us uh, in our current areas and regions is just planting new varieties. So the shift from the historical plantings that Australia's tended to have of Shiraz, Cabernet, and Chardonnay, and, and Riesling, and move into some newer varietals from more Mediterranean-based climates of Spain and Italy, and these are all varieties that are gr- originally grown in much in very harsh, arid environments, and right. and are naturally uh, much more drought drought prone and well, not drought prone, but um, heartier and able to get through through a tough climate yep. and a and a very dry dry growing season.
0: Because sultanas don't make good wine.
1: Sultanas <laughs> do not make good wine. <laughs> And you also and mentioned then also sorry.
0: Oh no, I was just gonna say you also mentioned you're moving into new southern areas.
1: Newer areas and yes, um no one would have thought back when the whole wine industry started in Australia that we'd be growing grapes at eleven hundred metres of altitude like we do in Orange or in the southernmost tip of Tasmania. So everyone's venturing into new newer areas, unknown areas that um that are also proving to be a pretty exciting prospect.
0: Absolutely, Australian producers of all different commodities are changing their strategy in line with climate change and you know hotter temperatures and less rain. What else is your business doing to manage that risk?
1: To to manage that risk from a direct vineyard point of view, where uh, we're looking at changing the orientation of of our vineyard rows from a typical north south facing alignment to switching it to an east west alignment and that's for more shade shade. so it's at the at the um 2 3 4 pm in the afternoon when that heavy bearing down sun is at its hottest the vine is more protected and um, that's when the most damage does happen so a lot of people in these drier more arid regions are looking at that as an option and then f- we're from also bringing in out a fair bit of diversification into our business, which means that we're not as reliant on certain aspects as we once were. Mm. Um, we do a lot of contract winemaking, so we make wine on behalf of quite a few other people. But um, our major d- diversifications are into other industries of, of cider production and then cherry juicing and and those two things happen at times when you know the winery is a little bit quieter um, and income streams at that period are a little bit lower Um, so it just helps to fill the gaps and not put as much stress on on that one Mm. harvest of grapes and um, and is just spreading our risk a little bit more but the major uh, benefit that we've seen back is still with the cellar door and that's a direct Winery to customer scenario, so right. um, all all the sale prices from that bottle of wine or that six pack of wine is coming directly back into the cellar door, um, and that's been a real real ben- benefit. And um, a lot of a lot of small businesses slot solely rely on their cellar door, and we are just pretty fortunate that it's just one of our many income streams. Mm-hmm. So, which um, just adds another another pie to part of the um, income scenario
0: and what's your primary income stream is it your exports
1: Uh, our primary income stream would definitely be domestic sales um, of of Gilbert wine in within Australia Um, Um, what's the
0: proportion between domestic and international
1: it would be would be about 70% domestic 30% export yeah but our export um, presence is well and truly growing. At the moment, we're in eight countries throughout the world, and uh, and by March, we're hoping that's going to be somewhere between twelve and fourteen. Wow! Well done. It's pretty exciting. Um, and the same. It's the same model of just having a little bit in, in each country, so we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket of you know solely relying on the New South Wales um, restaurant and cafe and venue scene, and we're. Got a little bit in New South Wales, a little bit in every other state and a yeah. little bit in quite a few other countries. So if one market or one area collapses, then the others can, can potentially pick up what, um, what does get dropped. Got, get dropped within that bad market.
0: So a lot of Australian producers, as you know, are trying to like, reach these new markets. How does your business go about you know, entering into those new contracts, both domestically and overseas?
1: So I've sort of been involved in the in the heavy push for domestic Gilbert um, and seen us be picked up and moved into almost every state now which is pretty exciting and that's just a lot of time energy and research going into into what distribution channels are possible who's potentially looking after um, those channels and whether it would be a right fit for for Gilberts and um, whether we want them to represent us in that area but then also from an export point of view that's well and truly headed up by dad so my father Simon um, he's a lot of time that he's spent he's been traveling going to all these trade shows pouring wine to potential customers and potential importers and then also plenty of uh, plenty of late night meals sealing these these export deals yeah so so,
0: i suppose that's my next question so it's trade shows it's calling restaurants up directly or do you go through wholesale distributors
1: domestically it's wholesale distributors and then also internationally it is that as well so but also from an importing point of view so first and foremost with these international countries going to these trade shows um european-based ones and asian-based ones and finding these importers that want to then firstly import and then from there you've then got to find someone that's willing, to, willing and keen to, to distribute you. So there's many, many pieces to the puzzle of trying to get your wines into, mm. into these countries. But once you're in, it's, um, it's an exciting prospect and, and also we all know that Australian wine is quite, quite sought after and has and gone through a bit of a change as well, which is quite exciting.
0: Yes, yeah, so tell me about that point of difference. Is it based on the trust for you know reliably produced food or sustainably produced food, or what, what is differentiating Australian produce?
1: Australian produce is just that um, we've always been known for producing high-quality wine and then high-quality high products from other agricultural sectors as well, and not only from a quality scenario, but we've also got the ability to have considerable volume within that quality sector. Yeah. And Wine Australia has recently led a bit of a push to move the perceived notion of, of Australian wine purely being commercial and, and large volumes. And they're really pushing this, this newfound marketing wave of um, Australian wine made our way and mm-hmm. it's a new wave of, of Australian wine... And that's really come in, coincided with although production is um, volume of export has reduced the value of those exports has actually increased. Yeah. So that's really showing that the premium quality um, Australian wine is being seen out there. It's not just the the lower commercial high volume stuff and which comes back to what you're asking of, I think it's the diversity, but at, no matter what, it's always a quality point of view, whether it's you know a $6 bottle of wine or a $600 bottle of wine, the, the customer's still going to see that there's quality and an appropriate quality based on the dollar that the customer's willing to spend.
0: Yeah. So I suppose wine is one of the only agricultural products that is fully complete before it leaves the farm gate. What is um, Gilbert Family Wine's point of difference, but also what proportion of your success do you place on branding versus the actual taste versus human relationships versus trust?
1: So first and foremost with our all of our Gilbert wines, it's got to be a wine that we're all happy to sit down and have at the dinner table over a family meal. So it's a product that is constantly over delivering and more often than not when we're out selling these wines to venues and distribute potential distributors and things. They're just blown away by the affordability of them. Um, So we want to make them as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Um, We're also from a region that is on the up. Um, So at the moment we're sort of in that scenario of having an accessible price and attracting that consumer in for that price and and the attractive branding, the simplicity the simple branding that we have. Um, and then we hope that they're happy with the quality of the product and, and that they keep on coming back and back again.
0: And for those people who don't know, what price bracket are you at about?
1: We Our cheapest wine is we're starting at $20 a bottle. And we go up to $48 a bottle. Right, so totally so, affordable.
0: And for people who haven't yet looked at the Gilbert family wines, the branding is impeccable. It's like really... Lovely simple um, textual writing against a white background on some of them, but they really are just definitely that Scandinavian lovely simple brand. Very
1: simple, yeah. basic, a uh, very less is more approach. And yeah, and it wanting, really really works. Wanting the what's inside the bottle to speak, and and it's still an eye catching brand and and font and things that things are remembered and and hopefully everyone just keeps on coming back for.
0: Ha- for more, for more. <laughs> have your sales increased a lot since you introduced that um, new branding
1: yes the yeah the sales have changed considerably with the well firstly with the straight gilbert reference <laughs> not the multitude of gilberts um but the the fresh approach that it's clean and sleek and it's ultimately quite a quite a refreshing label and and that's Uh, has seen the listings grow on on bottle shop shelves and and venues where where the wines are on display because all these venues do want they don't just want the the crazy no punk rock label or the very simple boring label that is seen um all throughout the the countryside but they're wanting labels that are of appeal and then also that are suitable for For the restaurant's image or the bar's image as well so we've seen a lot that's grown and certainly in that sector of where bottles are shown and present for the customer to pick up and grab off the shelf and which is quite an interesting sort of aspect to to the domestic market here in Australia
0: absolutely who did that branding for you
1: that was done predominantly by Belle Campbell a friend of a friend of mine um and she's yeah a pretty talented graphic designer
0: absolutely um okay we're also seeing a massive growth in consumer demand for sustainably produced wines, and a growth in the sober curious movement is your company looking to do anything in the non-alcoholic wine space or are you looking into organics or which of those trends is affecting you if any
1: we've seen some massive trends towards vegan based wine um because wine can be we can add animal-based products to wines to you know take out things that the producer or the winemaker don't really want to see in that wine. So, so such as skim milk and egg whites and they, they're dropping out harshness and bitterness and things like that. So there's a real push for vegan-based wine and um, and there's alternative additions that we can make. Instead of adding skim milk, there's now pea protein and um, that's a huge, huge movement and was a little bit of a kickback for a little while but we've all of our wines through from... 2019 and 2020, there's a bit of a transition and they'll all be vegan-based wines. Um, that's from wow. a sustainability scenario and also moving with the times and trying to cater to you know as much people as possible because you don't want to be putting a restriction on any potential outlet or venue or marketplace purely from an from addition that was made in the winery. And then a sustainable farming model is something that I'm hugely passionate about. We're currently leasing a vineyard in Mudgee and we don't own it. um, But one day when we ultimately do or another site that we then plant, um, that will be sustainably farmed. It won't necessarily be certified organic or biodynamic, but it will be well and truly farmed in a sustainable way. and, And That's awesome. Part of that sustainability is is also providing for the family and I believe that's a restriction that is when you're certified that's that is well and truly hindered because at the end of the day you still got to harvest and you've got to make a decision and just because it's you know it's not a fruit day you can't harvest so um, and would like to be dictated I don't want to be restricted by um, by that calendar and when things can be harvested so the sustaining sustainable farming model is definitely going to be front and centre in the future, for not only our Gilbert brand but also many other wine-based mm-hmm. and vineyards in the, all throughout Australia.
0: And what about organics?
1: And organics, it's all encompassing. Um, so organic and biodynamic farming, it'll be yeah, not spraying with synthetic-based chemicals and um, and bringing cover crops and doing certain biodynamic procedures, and just trying to minimize the direct impacts on the environment yeah. and, that, and that site that we're in, um, and then, but still have the option that if there's a big rain front coming, or if there's a big, um, big, hub, big climatic change, that we can still potentially do something, if needs be, from a, from a survival scenario.
0: So Gilbert Family Wines in 10 years is going to be vegan, organic, sustainable, biodynamic and will make you fly. Look out. <laughs> um, okay, so in terms of planning for the future, are you guys a company that do strategic planning? Like do you sit down and have a chocolate digestive and plan or do you get external consultants or how does it work?
1: There's no external consultants. Dad and I try and do some some strategic planning when when time permits and you know, usually it's at some terrible hour in the middle of harvest or um, after a crazy week and when he's just got back from overseas it's, there's never a good time for it but we try and try and sit down and have a few strategic chats every now and then and but I'm hopeful that yeah one day we might you know get a get an outside mind in and whether that's um, a mentor of mine or just a business-based friend of dad's that um, is now sort of the wine industry just from a business scenario or a complete random um involvement from that has no strings attached to the industry but i think having an outside set of eyes and ears and and another brand there that is outside of the the gilbert family table is is a big addition and something i'm pretty keen to do in the, over the next couple of years absolutely and further solidify ideas that we have or to tell us that it's an absolutely ridiculous decision, and yeah. don't waste our time doing that, and should do something else.
0: And so, on that note, what's the company structure? Is it just you don't have a board? You are, you know, proprietary limited, or how does it work? It's
1: there's there's no board. It's uh, Dad's the chief winemaker and general manager, and I'm the winemaker, and then we've got a pretty strong, amazing team beneath us of of six people in the winery, in the office at the winery, and then a, a strong team of of two. Three permanent staff at the door and a big team of casuals there. So it's all quite an even platform. There's no crazy hierarchy. It's it's all um, a very strong level of communication across all tiers, and um, and everyone's just in it all for the right reasons of mm. trying to um, trying to better the Gilbert family brand.
0: Yep. And has your dad handed like most of the responsibility? I know he's doing exports, but for wine production it's all Will Gilbert.
1: Look the, the wine production's all all done by me. Dad is still heavily involved though from from afar, but also he's the one that's still making the harvest decisions of, of when we uh running the harvester through or the picking team through to harvest the fruit from from our mudgy orange and Eden Valley vineyards. Or he's the one that's the final tick of approval when the blend goes together. Um, no wine goes out unless it's, it's approved by him. So yeah. he, he still he still does oversee it all. But as from a as a general scenario, he's yeah, oversees the whole business and is focusing more on in the, in the um, export scenario and building that that basis. And because they still, particularly the the Chinese, basically clients of ours they they want to see they want to see Simon, they want to see the person that's been in the yeah. industry for for a long long time and not the not just the young kid that's still finding his feet <laughs> the little
0: rookie waving his flag um so on that note what's the global like what are the global forces affecting you guys we've got brexit we've got china and us trade relations we've got you know massive changes in where wine is produced you know what what's happening on a global stage and how's that affecting your company
1: the the instability of all these other political factors have almost been at the benef, at the benefit of the Australian wine export movement so with the with the China US relations or the the Chinese cut ties with importing US wine and and a lot of other US based products as well so the positives for that were that there were all, all these new avenues for for Australian wine, from from a super premium end all, all the way down to a to a commercial end. So, the the icons of Australia benefited, the the big commercial producers of Australia benefited, but also the small premium guy, or like the small premium brand like us, were also also positive there. And then there's talks now with Brexit. Um, whether there's going to become a free trade agreement with, with Australia and, and the UK, which is, which is pretty exciting. Um, and French wine would obviously be quite heavily impacted there and, and German-based wine and Absolutely. Italian. All, all the amazing European wines would be, would be a bit hindered, but to the mm. positive of, of the Australian wine export program, that'll be, you know, be, be a big plus, but who knows what will happen.
0: So you guys over the next 12 months will be pretty aggressive on the marketing, especially in Europe, like really trying to get over there and capture that opportunity.
1: So we're just um, about to send our first few pallets over to the, to the UK, um, which is quite exciting. Um, and that's a, that's a full distribution model that import and then they then sell it to, to a multitude of venues and then also have their own bottle shops as well. So right. we're sort of getting in now, which is quite exciting. Yeah, well done. Um, and you know the the growth of that could be could be pretty crazy, considering mm-hmm. considering the changes in with this potential free trade agreement.
0: And all those angry British people waiting for a glass of wine, to calm their Brexit woes. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so I suppose does the Australian government like the Australian wine industry? It's a two point eight billion dollar industry. We're producing nearly one and a half billion liters of wine a year, and we're the large, world's fifth largest exporter? Are they helping you? Are they hindering you? Or do they, you know, pretty much stay out of your way?
1: The, the government has a, has a representative body called Wine Australia and they're a fantastic organisation that is really at the moment singing, singing the voice of the small producer, of the premium producer. Um, like I was saying before, they're trying to retell the Australian wine story and show that there's another side to it, and it's a premium side, and and a quality focused side, a side that's driven by sustainable farming, or or ultimately just the best possible bottle of wine that that mm. producer can produce. And and as the the volume that's being exported has reduced, the price and the return of what's being exported has actually increased. So that okay coincides with wine Australia and the success of that campaign well and truly being paid off.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, so I'm going to say the same for you. You are the Federal Minister for Agriculture. You have infinite power and infinite funds. What are some of the things you do to help your industry?
1: Well, firstly, water is always a problem um, for any agriculture-based industry and definitely viticulture as well. So um, access to to an infinite amount of water through pipelines and increase the amount of dams and, and other things like that. But then also future-proofing the industry um, as climate changes. I think more time and energy can be spent on varieties that will work in the yeah. future and and going over to other harsh, arid parts of the world and seeing how they do it and how they farm. and um, And to continue that further further development in, into the research and, and possible future scenarios of, of other regions in Australia and other varieties.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. Um, on the topic of climate change or just challenges, what's some of the technology that you're using? Like, have you got sensors or satellite or, you know, is, is there a lot of tech in viticulture?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of tech. Um, and we've all – a lot of vineyards through New South Wales, thanks to New South Wales DPI, have weather stations um, we don't have one, but our neighbours do, so we get all the data and everything from there. Um, but the main thing that, yeah, I suppose is front and centre now, based off, off on the drought and water availability, is the key thing for all vineyards. Is just having water depth sensors, moisture sensors mm-hmm. and at sixty centimetres, one hundred and twenty centimetres, and and further down. So we can really get a good indication of, of the moisture and the water availability to that vine at that point, yep. um, at that moment.
0: So you're a gadget man.
1: A real gadget man.
0: <laughs> My brother-in-law, he loves ag technology and in his youth, it's like this souped-up robot, like you go inside and it's like clicking and buzzing with like, you know, moisture sensors going off here and automatic bloody gates going off there. It's very funny. Um, okay, fantastic. So that's technology okay I your Instagram as a company is awesome it's really buzzy and it has a lot of followers are you finding social media a good way to interact with consumers and is it leading to sales or is it just a good time
1: I'm not sure if it leads to sales but it leads to just constant communication with with the people that want to follow us and want to know um what we're doing and how what we're doing at that point what we're harvesting what we're making um and then also it's a nice easy system of, of highlighting some successes that we've had, some awards that we've won and scores that we've received as well. So just allows a more relaxed form of interaction with the with the consumer or with the follower um, as opposed to a bit more of a formalized EDM mail out that yeah, happens yeah. once a month. It is just a bit more of a relaxed approach to giving the message that we want to the consumer.
0: Yeah, awesome. And... Last year and the few years before, uh, people who follow the food movement in Australia might have seen Gilbert Family Wines was running these awesome paddock-to-plate lunches called Food Over Fire with the chef Pip Sumbak. They were highly successful. They were well publicised. Were they good for sales or did were they a lot of effort but it wasn't actually leading to profit? And will you do them again?
1: Yeah, we definitely will hopefully do them again. We've just got to lock pick, pick down when she's not in fiji perfect <laughs> <Surf it. laughs> uh, um, but yeah no it was amazing the the feedback that we obviously had um, and the support of friends and and family and further afield people as well was was pretty mind blowing and um and everyone just had an absolutely amazing amazing time and the events were a huge success, but the traction that we received from from people that were Fans of Pip and then vice versa it was was super beneficial and um, and that saw a huge growth in in our social media um, and just further add, added substance and weight to, to to the Gilbert family brand as Mum and my sister are big foodies so um, that's a real a real good um, addition into into the Gilbert family brand and you know my sister might be involved and do something like that further further down the track as well and. And um, it would just add further weight and, and intrigue and interest.
0: It really was great. For the podcasters who don't know, um, the food over fire lunches were like you know, four to four hour experiences. Four hour long
1: grazings of, of everything literally cooked over fire, coming back fires. in multitudes of chard and um, just packed with full of flavor and just a long, slow grazing afternoon with plenty of Gilbert wine
0: yeah like fantastic eggplant and pumpkin cooked over the coals and like beautiful matched wine and lamb cooked on a spit and you everyone sort of gathers around the fire all day while the food cooks and then shares it together with people they don't know so if you are interested in that definitely keep an eye out because these are some of the best going um like food experiential
1: brussels sprouts have never tasted so good yeah
0: brussels sprouts really had never tasted so good um, okay, so if you could look at young will at ten years ago and give him some advice, what would that advice be?
1: Get involved as quickly as possible as young as possible um and definitely but start that degree at a young age and and finish it that's that's um the big the big regret, but anyway, we can move on, and I'll get there eventually but um travelling the world seeing. Seeing the world of wine from from a different perspective of there 's a whole world out there and it 's just it 's just not australia and um, I was pretty fortunate that I have worked in a few places overseas and will continue to and and I did a buck the trend and did it a little bit differently i went to went to a country like Australia to begin with for a couple of years and um, and that was just when I was still learning the big macro scenarios of you know how to make wine and and the big raw basics and I only went to, went to France in 2017 once I'd officially been working in the industry for eight years, and, um, and that was just the minor details and, and the, the cultural lifestyle, the, the, the all-encompassing experience of wine and, and what it has to offer in the beautiful world countries. But, um, yeah, it just the, the main advice would just be travel, travel and work for as many producers as possible mm. and, um, and go see the big wide world out there before coming home.
0: Awesome. Um, you're very lucky to be part of a family business. But what about someone who doesn't have a family business who wants to own their own wine company or get involved?
1: To, well, just to get involved would be to to do do the reading, do the diligent planning of of what wines you might like, and um, and look that producer up and send them an email or give them a phone call, and and um, that's what I did for those three opportunities in France. I was doing a lot of readings about those countries and I didn't just apply for a job that was you know on on the seat version of of the wine industry. I cold emailed them and got in nice and early and just communicated with them and um and applied for a job that wasn't that I knew was would be coming that was necessary for harvest but it wasn't being advertised or anything so doing the research and and getting involved at at, at the early stages, with with these great producers and and doing the diligent readings, and then from there, just asking a huge amount of questions. There is no dumb question. I guarantee you, I've asked every stupid question in the wine industry. But being all ears to the answers of those questions um, is, is is the way forward, definitely. Mm-hmm. And then getting involved from a from a business scenario is. Once, you, once you've got the foundations and you've had a few years in the industry and give it a go of making your own wine and, um, and think from little things, big things grow and a tonne of grapes one year could all of a sudden be doing, you could be doing 10 tonnes of that in three or four or five years' time. So um, a lot of producers support the development of their, their younger winemaking team and we do. All three of our core winemaking team make their own wine year in, year out, and it's just just a few barrels here and there, but it allows their own personal growth, but then also allows, you know, potentially if they want it to be, a, a business as well, mm. whilst they've still got their main their main source of income. That's great.
0: So for someone who has been in the wine industry for, say, seven years, they've you know how to crack at producing a beautiful wine, and they believe that it is good. What is the next step for them to productise it and make it happen?
1: I'd say they've got to keep doing it, um, and once the next season comes around, try and get their hands on a little bit more fruit and and make a commercially viable volume, and and from there, continue to do that whilst you still have your main primary source of employment. Um, keep your
0: day job. Keep your day job.
1: <laughs> keep the one that pays. Um, but and then you never know what's around the corner. You might, you know, have a conversation with someone on a plane or at a pub or or at a at a workplace function or something, and they might absolutely adore your idea and really want to get behind you and take a bit of a risk and and um, be willing to give you some capital to f- further advance that or going in and do a joint venture and, and really assist you in taking that next step for a fully-fledged, proper wine label.
0: Yeah. Um, Will it how do you prioritise your work-life balance, or do you?
1: It's a real struggle. Um, yeah, having a family business, I am a real person that likes to lead the way through work ethic and, um, and for a little while there I was just, you know, a huge amount of hours and and it gets to the point that those hours you know, efficiency goes out the window and sometimes you're just there not really doing much so outside of harvest i've sort of tried to um be just be more effective when i am there and when i am at work and sometimes you, i do need to take work home and you know i might come home have dinner and then continue to work for a couple of hours but try to get home in a reasonable hour and Switch off for a couple of hours a day at home around the dinner table cooking dinner. Try to put the phone away, but um, at the end of the day, it's a real balancing act, and you know some nights it's easy, and other nights it's quite difficult. Yeah. Um, and then obviously holidays, it's 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 another it's another thing. And
0: do you go but, on holidays?
1: I try to <laughs> um, try to at least you know have a week a year, um, but it takes a long time to allow for that week to happen, and then a long time to um then get reorganized after being away yeah. for a week so i'm more i'm more trying to just yeah, get that work-life balance in sorted in order so holidays aren't as necessary as what they once were and at the end of the day it's still still a family business and um and i think it's more important that to the to my detriment that my parents have the holidays at the age that they're at and and i've just got to sort of bide my time and and try and be better balanced on a on the Monday to Sunday as opposed to fit packing in all these holidays. Mm.
0: Do you have a mentor? I've
1: obviously got a mentor every day of the week at at work with my father. He's a highly respected person in the industry from other people and um, and and obviously by me. Um, and he's been an amazing mentor to me, and and a whole lot of other young winemakers in the industry. And he's incredibly knowledgeable, and also willing and giving with his time and and knowledge. But I've been pretty fortunate with the with two people that I've worked with overseas. Um, they I still am in touch with them, and I still talk to them. Not a um, not a real structured way by any means. It's through WhatsApp and emails and things every now and then, but. They're aware of what I'm doing and and I stay in touch and ask them questions and advice of what to do from a winery basis, more so with one person. And then another person is more so um, from a business and wine scenario. So they're incredibly willing with their knowledge as well and two very lovely people and Mm. at the peak of their powers in their own country and also internationally as as winemakers and business people.
0: On an international level, will who or which country do you think is producing wine the best, and why?
1: You might think that I'm being biased, but I'm got. To, I'm definitely going to say Australia here. Uh, the diversity of varieties that we have, because we're pretty fortunate that we can plant whatever we want wherever we want. We're not influenced and restricted by by rules and regulations. So every now and then, there's little surprises that pop up of regions that. Do amazingly well with with certain varieties that historically people thought they were lunatics for planting and and the diversity from a brand point of view as well not just varietals um, you've got the tiny little one-person band and all the the big commercial producers that uh, continues to make amazing wine so I think from a diversity point of view um, and the scale from both small and large and varietal influence, I think Australia is well and truly packing above packing above our weight and punching above our weight.
0: That's awesome so good to know okay, do you have a podcast or any reading like that you would recommend?
1: So there's one really good podcast that I regularly listen to and they um it's an American-based podcast and they it's called I'll Drink to That by Levy Dalton and um, he just in, interviews influential people in the wine industry, both distribution, production and viticulture and a lot of the winemakers there that he has interviewed in the last couple of years are, are winemakers that I'm very interested in and they're sort of methods and their models and, and the way they go about things and their reasonings for doing certain things. And that's been a pretty pretty, pretty formative podcast. Um, and then readings, there's an amazing array of books. Um, some of them are terribly translated, but there's, yeah, some fantastic books from both beginners um, for a book called Wine Folly um, through to sort of pretty knowledgeable people of books that are written by by um, geniuses in the field of Jancis Robinson and, and many other, many other amazing authors, and just continue to read, and that's sort of how I've not made up for my lack of university. Um, it's more, it's sorry. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, these the the reading that I do do is well and truly balanced out the the lack of completion of my university degree. Um, and these books are pretty, pretty informative and amazingly detailed, and and sort of tells you everything that the, the degree can also do at the same time. And cool, but I still continue to, you know, questions and phone calls and emails are still just as important to me as those podcasts and, and those books.
0: Yeah, um, and winemaking for dummies. <laughs> um, you are being sent onto, I suppose this is my last question and it has nothing to do with winemaking. You are being sent onto a desert island and you're not allowed to come back for 10 years. You are allowed one thing. What are you going to take?
1: Sent to an island for 10 years. I can't take anything back. Well, it's going to have to be my little puppy Labrador <laughs> called Bonnie.
0: You can take Bonnie. That's fine. Um, okay, well, that's enough from me. We've now found out what's eating Gilbert Grey and what's drinking it. Um, If you have any questions for Will, we'll put some contact details on the bottom of the podcast and some show notes. And thank you all so much for listening. Cheers.
1: Cheers. Thank you very much, guys.